How are we? Great, great, great. Well, it's an honour to be able to speak to you tonight and share what God's put in my heart and what God's been speaking to me about. Before we do, let's uh, get back into that atmosphere of worship. Why don't you close your eyes? Holy Spirit, we thank you for being here. And we thank you that you want to move in each person's life tonight, that you want to be closer to people, and you want them to know your calling in their life, and you want them to know you personally, for those who don't. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've prepared this place. We thank you that you've called each of us to be conquerors. You've called each of us to be children of God. And you've called us to be transformed into life. We thank you, Father. We thank you that the words I'm speaking tonight are not my own. I'm just a humble servant, although even that statement's not that humble. And Lord, I thank you that no matter what comes out of Elijah's mouth tonight, what matters most is what you say to us and what we hear from your word. We thank you. We pray for those in the fires right now those in the literal fires, that you would be there with them and that your peace would be with them. And Father, we know that even in dire circumstances, there is a hundred times greater in your kingdom. We look forward to that. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight I'm going to speak to you guys about, my title is, nearly losing it, Greater is He Who Lives in Me. Turn to your neighbor. Say, greater is he who lives in me. We got the whole thing there. Well done, BSP people. Can we give the BSP people a clap? They're fantastic. Yeah. You don't go unrecognized, guys. We all appreciate you. Us worship leaders, especially. Great. So, I've got a mountain at the back here. Because we're going to be taking mountains tonight. You ready? Going to be taking mountains um, because of who lives in us. Um, and I want to talk to you guys a lot about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the greater one who lives within us. Our theme this year has been all about greater and somehow I feel like we've missed this key passage in the Bible. It says, greater is he who lives in you than he who lives in the world. So I'm going to talk about Holy Spirit. And one thing I've learned about Holy Spirit in the last few years is the Holy Spirit does not discriminate. Imagine if everybody was like a chocolate in the Cadbury Favorites box. You know, those people who pick out uh, the flakes and the white chocolate and they leave the rest because those are the best, you know? Well, Jesus, God, he doesn't discriminate. He takes even the Turkish delights. He takes even the plain Cadbury. He doesn't discriminate with who you are. And what I mean by this is God's not looking for a specific calibre of person for him to use. He's willing to use anybody in the favourites box. And hey, you're all in the favourites. You're all in the favourites. Uh, what chocolates are missing from the favourites? I don't know, but you're not one of those. Okay. He uses... All sorts of people. And sometimes he uses people who I wouldn't expect him to use. And there's been times in my life where I've been humbled, where I've not liked somebody 
or I've not believed in them in some way, and Jesus does something amazing through them. They do something incredible through Jesus' name. And there I am going, oh, dang, Holy Spirit, you've humbled me here yet again. But um, as much as that is humbling, it's also really comforting. Because it means when I get up to do something like this, I don't have to rely on myself. I don't. I don't have to rely on how skilled a speaker I am, how intelligent I am, how much time I took into preparing. I don't have to even, it doesn't even matter how humble I am, God can still use me. And that might seem strange to you, and I definitely intend to be humble. But I know sometimes even people with skewed intentions, God can still use them to do something incredible. And there I am left humble, like a lowly doorstop. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of you might have have a relationship with Holy Spirit. God's Spirit, Holy Spirit, is God here, His presence down on earth with us here. And you might like the idea of the God-loving Father. You might love what Jesus has done for you, but you're like, oh, you know, with the third guy, I'm just going to, that's all right, I don't need a relationship with him. Already got my plate full. But you know what? You can't take two-thirds of God. He wants you to have it all. And the Holy Spirit is not an optional extra in your Christianity. You know, when you are, maybe you've gone and bought a new car and they you, they got like the box where you tick all the different optional extras. You've got uh, the um, GPS. You've got the back wiper blades. You've got the uh, comfy seat interior. And then you've got the power steering, which is not optional. And... Um, my uncle Daniel gave me this analogy. Holy Spirit's like power steering. He's not optional in your Christianity. You really need him. So I think that's really important that we, we acknowledge that, that Holy Spirit isn't just that, that step forward that you can go as a Christian. He really is the essence of your relationship with God. And tonight I'm going to speak about what is entailed if you've got the Holy Spirit living in you. What comes with that? What are, you, what are you going to expect from your life if the greater one lives in you? Okay, so I'm going to tell you a bit about my story. You ready? Ready for my story time? I'm going to be a bit vulnerable tonight. I hope you're okay with that. Um, so I grew up, as many of you know, as a PK. And that means pastor's kid. And I grew under the feet of these legends, my mum and dad, who were youth pastors um, as of the day I was born. And they continued being youth pastors uh, for like the next what, 13, 14 years, something like that. 10 years, that's the one. And I got to watch them and, and see the incredible ministry that they would do. And I saw their relationship with God and how it was, so, it was so genuine. It was the same at church as it was at home. And that, you know, did a lot good for me. But also what I felt like when I was young is that I had a massive shadow almost to live up to, um, massive expectation. And there I was, I got these awesome, you know, giants of parents, they're awesome. And then I got these two older brothers who are also doing awesome stuff. And then I've got a younger brother who's so um, socially hyped and he knows how to communicate with anybody and then I felt inferior to that. So I grew up and I felt like I had this bit of an inferiority complex where I didn't quite measure up and I kind of kept this to myself and it does, I think, 
uh, it did transform parts of my personality. And I remember um, I was about 13 years old and they, they uh, were organising a trip to go to IC conference. You know the conference? This is the conference of legend. It was awesome. The flush dance, anybody? Flush Dance. Come on, if you haven't seen it, look up Flush Dance IC. It's an incredible video. We, we just wasted a lot of time doing that. Okay. It involves a flash dance in the bathroom for anyone that needs the context. So we go, I go to this conference, and it's up in Queensland, long bus trip there and back. And I remember thinking to myself, on one of the nights, I don't know who was speaking, someone did something, and uh, I remember thinking to myself, you know, no matter what happens, I'm going to believe in God forever. You know, I had that thought. Maybe you've had that thought too. No matter what happens, I'm going to believe in God forever. It doesn't matter whether I feel like it or not. And I remember God speaking to me and saying, is that good enough? Are you content with just being a believer that God is real for the rest of your life? And you know, that was almost a self-answering question. I wasn't content with that. And uh, one of those nights, someone um, gave a night, uh, a night where they were baptizing people in the Holy Spirit. And I realized that I didn't quite have this relationship. It was more just a belief. And I said, yeah, you know what, God, I'm not satisfied with just believing in you for the rest of my life. I want to go that step further and receive you. I want to have a relationship with you. And God transformed my life from then on. And some important things happened in my life. You know, number one, I spoke in tongues and I cried, that happened. But you know what? That wasn't the big thing. That didn't have to happen because what happened was I knew that God himself was there with me, right? And from that day on, he was there with me. The other thing, I knew I was saved. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not, not drawing a line as to where you're saved or not. I don't know. But what I knew at that moment when I had God there was I knew that personally I was saved and there was no doubt in my mind. And thirdly, God began, keyword began, to transform my identity of who I thought I was. So I, my insecurities and my inferiority complex began to change as he would mold and chisel my character and he would reaffirm me and he'd edify me and he'd encourage me as to who I truly was. And we're going to talk about this first up tonight because God is making you part of his family. I'm going to read you the key scripture tonight and I want you to hold on to this. It goes like this, 1 John 4 verse 4 says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them that is, the Antichrists, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That's our key scripture tonight. And when the Holy Spirit is in you, he makes you one of God's children, and you are part of God's family. You come from God. And the enemy can't stand against that. Awesome. So, you guys are part of the family. I'm going to give you a bit of a rundown of the Bible. Because I've had a bit of transformed understanding of the Bible. And I think that should be the way always. As you read the Bible, it begins to change the way we see it. And God begins to 
you know, work out what we need to hear in the scripture. So if I take us back to the very start, in the beginning, God created everything. He created the world, but not as we know it. He created the world perfect. He created all that we see, and he created us. And as Jesse said a few weeks ago, he created us as his images. We're there to be his image on earth. Very important job, very important role. And then we stuffed it up, and that is the world as we know it. We rebelled against God. There was a rebellion, and we sought our own way. And what this meant is we couldn't be linked with God anymore. There was a separation between us because of our hardened hearts. And God chose one nation from Abraham. And he said to Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to bless all nations. So he blessed Abraham. And Abraham, if you've heard that story, he has a son and his son has many sons. And then his son has many sons. And it goes on and on and on. And he chose Israel, his chosen nation. And through Israel, one day God saves the whole world. As uh, Israel... Um, is thrown into exile by Babylon. The Israelites, the Jewish people, they're scattered amongst the nations. And then as Jesus comes, he brings his Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he empowers the disciples. And the disciples go first to the Jews across all nations. And the Jews, they spread the word to the Gentiles. And God begins to share the good news with all through this chosen nation. And then... God, he doesn't only, Jesus doesn't only come just to, uh, you know, open our eyes, but he also comes almost in a way to trade his identity with ours. And upon that cross, when he died for us, he took on our sin, but he also gave us the, uh, we receive the, the right to become children of God when we receive him. So he gave you the right to be a daughter or a son of God. That's what he's done. He's made you a child of God. And the Holy Spirit affirms this. The Holy Spirit reminds you that you're a son of God. And what does it mean to be a son of God or a daughter of God? I want to um, read this to you. Romans eight fourteen to 15. You should know this scripture, but pay attention to this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you a slave to fear Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. He's made you children. And what does this mean? Let's have a look at this scripture. And it says uh, almost that having a spirit of fear is in direct opposition to having the Spirit of God. Right? So that means that having the Spirit of God... It means that the spirit of fear is gone. He doesn't have a place in your life anymore, that spirit of fear. doesn't have a right. It's almost like when you're, a, when you're a child of God, the fears are raced because when you understand that your Father in heaven, who is also the greater one within you, is greater than anything in the world, and he loves you and he cares for you, and you're not going to get trampled underfoot because he's got you taken care of. He's a big daddy. He's the biggest daddy in the whole playground. And you can tell those kids to flee because daddy could smash their daddy. 
Okay. <laughs> and God didn't want slaves. God wanted his sons and daughters as part of his mission on the earth. And now we're going to get to the real bulk of it, the mission. Before I do that, I want to share with you, uh, there's a guy and his name is Beckett Cook. Um, I heard his testimony about a year ago and it was really inspiring to me. Beckett Cook, he was a homosexual man and uh, he didn't know God. He hardly knew the name Jesus. One day he was invited to church from a guy in a cafe and he rocks up to church and, and he doesn't remember what the preacher said, but he remembers that he wanted something in his life. So he went out the front and they prayed for him. And in that moment, he was saved and he received the Holy Spirit right there, right then. And this is what he says. He says, I realized that my identity was not in my sexuality. And I didn't refer to myself as a gay man. I'm now a son of God. So people would ask him, you know, are you gay, are you straight? And he said, I'm a son of God. And he says, everyone's got their struggles. And I was really inspired by this guy because he understood that the other identities that the world gives you doesn't matter. It's about that core identity that you're a child of God. Yeah, yeah. I remember, actually, I'll tell you a story about today. I was in schools today and I was in this science lab. And there I was um, observing these crazy kids. It is crazy. And Rachel can testify. Andre can testify too. He's there. And um, they're playing chase around the, the things. And they're turning the gas on and then running. And they're doing all these sorts of stuff. And then they start playing this game. And um, what I noticed as I was just listening to them, trying to be you know, their friend, their approachable guy, they, they call this one girl mum. And they call um, this other guy like the big brother. And they're kind of like the leaders of this group. And, and it really touched my heart in this moment where I realized these kids, they're just looking for belonging. And they're like the lost boys. They just want a mum. They want someone who's going to be consistent and care for them. And they're looking for their group, their place to be. And uh, I realized in that moment that these kids don't, understand their identity, but they know what they're looking for. They're looking to be not just a, a slave or a worker. They want to be a child of somebody. Oh, it's powerful, very powerful. Great. So what does it mean? We're children of God. The Holy Spirit has known you as a child of God. But, there's a but, this comes with a responsibility. I know this as a I grew up as mum and dad's son. They had an expectation for me, although they were okay with me to kind of um, work out my interests and, and everything. They had an expectation for me. They expected that I was going to do ministry in my life in some capacity. And I'm so glad they did. And this was part of my growing up and, and uh, I had to come to terms with what that meant. But in the same way, when you're part of God's family, he's got a job for you. In fact, you are called to conquer. You are called to conquer. I, I floated a bit with what I was going to title my message tonight. But can you turn to the person next to you and say, you are called to conquer. Yeah, come on. You are called to conquer. And Jesus demonstrates this. Uh, he demonstrates what his church is called to do. And I'm going to read you this scripture. And it's um, 
It's uh, where Jesus talks to Peter about who people say he is. So Jesus is there with his disciples. Picture in your head now. He's there with his disciples. They're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Can you say Caesarea Philippi? Long name, long story. And they're there, and he, and he asks them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Talking about himself. And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say a prophet. Uh, we don't know. Um, and then he asks them, well, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you're the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not conquer it. Now, let me give you a bit of history, a bit of a backstory here. Caesarea Philippi is the Las Vegas of the ancient world. They have had quite a history with the things that they worship, and they've had quite um, a bad reputation in this area. It's like um, uh, what happens in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi, okay? So... It's not very good. They, it was an altar to Pan, who was a, a god that they worshipped a long time ago. And then after that, the Greeks took over and it became an altar to Zeus. And they worshipped Zeus there at Caesarea Philippi. It was at the foot of a big mountain, at foot of Mount Hermon. And in the mountain was a big hole. And these are always big, scary, intimidating holes. And this hole was known by the people there as the Gate of Hell. The gate of hell. All right? So you can see we've got the gates of hell mentioned there. Interesting. So the gates of hell, and they were two detestable things at these gates at the winter and the summer solstice. They believe that's where gods would meet them and they would offer sacrifices and even child sacrifices, all sorts of things. So it really earned its reputation as the gates of hell. And Jesus thinking it was a, a nice field trip with his disciples, takes them to the mouth of this, of this cave around this area, Caesarea Philippi. And actually, I don't have a photo here, but there is a photo of um, some uh, people uncovering the ground there, and it's very much a very rocky terrain, all right? Very rocky. It's, it's as the mountain begins to go up, and there is clearly a big hole in the side of the mountain. They had lots of buildings and temples and altars set up there. And Jesus says this, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not conquer it. There's three bolded words in, in three bolded sections in this. This rock. I want to suggest to you tonight that when Jesus says, upon this rock, he's not referring to Peter. So the Catholics believe he's referring to Peter. And I don't even think he's referring to, you know, God, the rock, you know, build your house upon the rock. I don't think that's what he's referring to either. And a lot of scholars would back this up. He's Referring to the ground that they're standing on, Caesarea Philippi, 
and at the gates of hell. And he says, in the enemy's territory right here where we stand, I'm going to build my church. Okay, right? It's powerful. And the gates of hell, just pointing right there, the gates of hell, not the drum kit, will not conquer it. All right, the gates of hell, the place where they worship their detestable gods and their idols, that will not conquer it. And now, I also want to suggest something to you. What are gates made for? Defense, right? They're made to keep people out, defend. Do gates conquer anything? They don't exactly conquer anything. You know who does the conquering? The church. Turn to the person next to you and say, you conquer, girl, or you conquer, man. All right, great job, great job. Okay. The gates of hell will not withstand it. The gates of hell will not be able to defend it. Okay? You understand kind of the context of what's going on here. Jesus is saying what his church, you guys, are going to do when he establishes you. You're going to go to the enemy's territory. You're going to set up your church. And that's not talking about a building. That's who you are. And the gates of the hell, the enemy's place, will not be able to withstand what you're doing there. All right? It's powerful. Jesus came to conquer, and his church is called to conquer too. And listen to the Great Commission. Go into all the earth and make disciples. First part of that method, going into all the earth. Make disciples. Making disciples is our tool. Baptize them in water. Baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit will then send them again into all the earth. Got something pretty awesome happening here under the scenes. Now, just after this, we know Jesus, he then says, well, guys, I'm going to die soon. Great conversation starter. I'm going to die. And Peter gets upset and he says, no, Lord, you're not going to die. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You know that part. And then Jesus takes them all up for a walk up the mountain. And if what was below the mountain was bad, up on top of the mountain's even worse. Six days later, it says in Matthew 17, he takes his disciples to the top of this mountain. His mountain is known as Mount Hermon. And a lot um, of history is in Mount Hermon in the Bible. And it is a place of the worship of Baal. And a lot of you Bible readers will know that in ancient times, Baal was very much uh, God, uh, sorry, a god to the people um, in opposition to Yahweh, in opposition to our God. And us Christians worked out pretty quickly that this Baal was really Satan having a field day with a lot of people. And this mountain belonged to him. And it was where people would uh, go and worship Baal, who in their minds was the God above everything, the God who created everything. And Jesus chooses this mountain, this mountain, to take Peter, James, and John up. And this is called the Transfiguration. He goes up to the mountain, a long climb, and he gets there. And all of a sudden, 
he is uh, glorified. And Mark says that his body was like bleached as white and his clothes were super bright. And then all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses appear who also had revelations of God on tall mountains, right? That's just a side point. And Peter is freaking out and he's like, God, do we build some stuff? And, and anyway, God's voice shouts down and says, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And all of a sudden, everything goes quiet. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this, guys. Keep it secret. What happens in Mount Hermon stays in Mount Hermon. I like that one. Okay. Until all that has been said is accomplished, is what he says. Right. I think Jesus did this for a very intentional reason. I think Jesus went to Baal's mountain to pick a fight with the devil, to say, I really am the son of God. What are you going to do about it? Hey? And my posse's right here to back me up. Yeah. And there, Jesus, in a way, seals his grave because the devil gets mad. And you know what? The devil knew that he was the son of God, but the devil didn't know God's plan and what was in it. So the devil uses these people, these uh, leaders of the law, to try and take Jesus' life, which we know is what happens later. But the devil is clueless, man. He doesn't know. And so were the disciples, might I add. So you don't think you're much better. Straight away, Jesus gets to the foot of the mountain with his disciples. And what does he do? There's a demon possessed. Is it a boy? I don't know. I think it's a demon possessed boy. And the boy's there and the spirit's throwing him into the water and throwing him into the fire. And uh, the disciples who were there are panicking because they couldn't get it out. And Jesus tells the spirit to leave and it leaves. And this is really important. And you guys know this scripture. Listen to this. The disciples asked him, why couldn't we get rid of it? And Jesus replied, you don't have enough faith, Jesus told them. I tell you the truth, if you had faith enough as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it would move. Nothing would be impossible, right? Now, be patient with me for a moment. What mountain were they just on? They want Baal's mountain. And the disciples know this. They know that they've just been at Las Vegas. They know whose mountain that the ancient mind thinks that who owns that mountain. They know that it's Baal's mountain. And he says, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Right? Common uses of this scripture are like this. I've got a broken toe. But God, you can move mountains, so we pray that you would fix my toe. Right? I need another shift at work. Uh, God, you can move mountains. I pray that you would give me another shift at work. Right? Now, let me uh, specify that this isn't, those things are good to pray for. But I don't, and I think there's scriptures to back that up. But that's not exactly what this scripture is saying. What this scripture is saying is that if you go and stand on the enemy's ground or the enemy's mountain and say, 
move, get out of here, and you got that little bit of faith, mustard seed, then it'll move, right? So I also think that when we're speaking to a mountain, we're not necessarily speaking to the dirt and the stones, are we? We're speaking to the one who's on the mountain, okay? You might have heard the scripture, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that God of Israel lives. Now, I didn't add the mountain part. It was already there. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet. And what this scripture is saying, how beautiful are the feet of those that go into the enemy's place, the devil's territory, that school down the road that doesn't have access to Jesus. Those feet that go there and they proclaim the good news. Right? That's what this scripture is saying. Now, if, that's, if it's saying that the mountain means enemy's territory, then that makes a lot of sense as to what a mustard seed of faith means. Right? I don't know about you guys, but have you ever tried to analyze the Bible and work out exactly how much a mustard seed is? Yeah? You're like... All right, if I just I believe this much, I read this much of my word, pray this much, and that should be a mustard seed's worth, not quite a sesame seed. It's a little bit bigger. We're good. Okay. I don't know about you, but I've tried this. But if the devil is pushing back against you because you're trying to take ground, a mustard seed of faith is the smallest faith you need, and all that faith means is when you get pushed back, you stand your ground, right? I realize this. The devil's in a state of defeat, and the devil can't actually take more ground. He can't take the ground that is already God's, okay? But he will hold on to whatever ground he can as long as possible. So there will be pushback. And what Jesus is saying is all you need is enough faith to hang in there. And he's going to move. Another version says, speak to that mountain and tell it to go into the sea. And the sea is literally no ground. So you're saying, tell the devil to move from his ground and literally have no ground anymore. Right, right? Um. I'm going to get the band up, uh, if that's okay. We're not going to go for too much longer, but I hope the Spirit's speaking to you. Is He speaking to you? Great. I know I was in a workplace, I was in a school a few years ago where I was really um, quite, I felt on the defense against the enemy because I'd gone and stepped into his territory, school that had never had a Christian influence in it before. And there I was, and the devil really tried me a lot. I was there, and there was a lot of pushback happening. A lot of teachers didn't want me there. The principal didn't want me there. Um, Kids having goes at me because kids love to test you, but kids don't discriminate. They test everybody. So I'm there, and I feel this massive pushback against me, and I could have quit. I could have handed in the keys and I could have said goodnight. But I, 
I stuck it out. I said, God, if you put me here, you put me here for a reason. And all I need is this little bit of faith. That didn't mean I enjoyed it. It didn't mean I got up at 6 a.m. every morning and did circles around the school. I couldn't. I didn't do that. I wish I had a bit more faith, but I didn't do that. It didn't mean that I just, I just tried to think as many positive thoughts as I could. But what it meant was when the enemy pushed back, I just didn't move. Right? I didn't let what he was doing phase me because I trusted in my Father in heaven. I trusted in the one who was greater within. Right? We sang this song tonight, um, The Spirit of the Lord Within fights for me. And he takes my sin away. He's with me in my suffering. And should I even fall, should I stub my toe, fall down the stairs he picks me up again right we sing this song do you understand what it means it means that the spirit within you is greater than the one in the world and you weren't called to just be a position filler in god's family he's called you to be a unique son or daughter in his family okay last scripture i'm going to share with you tonight Luke 11, verse 21 says, When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. Okay? But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusts and divides up his plunder. I used to wonder who this stronger one was. Does this have to do with uh, living in Mount Druid? Or... uh Something like that? No, sorry. I'm being so mean. What this means is the devil, he's pretty strong because he's very good at lying and he's got quite a lot of ground, right? He's got a lot of stuff and he's guarding his house. He's not just leaving for open round and he keeps it safe, right, to him. But someone stronger has come, right? Jesus told this parable. He was the stronger one, and the people around him knew what he was talking about. When the stronger one attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Okay? And we share in the spoils. We share in the spoils. That means the ground of the enemy is ours for the taking. Okay? What does this mean practically? It means stay, stand where you are. If you're feeling pushback from the devil in your life, stand where you are. Believe in the Spirit who lives within you. Where the Spirit of God goes, or where, where you go, the Spirit of God goes before you. It also means claiming it with prayer. Now, what prayer does, when you pray over the place that you're in, When you pray for the ground that you stand on, whether that be your school, your workplace, your home, anywhere you are right now is an area of contest unless it's already God's, okay? And what prayer does is it makes you realize what's going on in the spiritual. So you get there and you can realize that this isn't just life. This is an attack of the enemy and you can fight against that, right? And all you need is that mustard seed to stand strong and be brave enough to take another step, 
right? It takes a lot of effort to be brave. Brave doesn't mean no fear. Brave means in the absence of fear, taking a step, okay? So I don't expect any of you guys to go all um, Arnie Schwarzenegger um, on your ground because it's scary, but be brave. Be brave. Lastly, I'm going to read the scripture again. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. This is the Bible. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You believe it? Okay. Now, what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit living in you? It means you're part of the family and it means you're called to conquer. And maybe you don't feel like you've conquered anything in your life. Maybe you don't feel like you're anything important, but you were part of the family and you're called to conquer. He's got a responsibility for you and it's going to make your life worth living. It's actually the reason you were made to be part of a family and to conquer. Okay. And when you live, the, uh, live according to the reason you were made, it is the most fulfilling thing you can do. Tonight what we're going to do is we're going to sing um, He Is With Me. We're going to sing this song, sing about the Spirit. We're going to open up um, the area out here. And if you would like Holy Spirit to come afresh on you because you feel like you've either lost this identity or you've lost this calling and you don't know what comes next, why don't you make that step and just come and be filled with the Holy Spirit again or be reminded of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Or be reminded of the transformation that he's doing in you. He's got deep wells for you. But if you've never received Holy Spirit in your life and you've been doing this Christianity without power steering, you've been doing this on your own, you've been doing this with a belief in God but no relationship, that's what tonight's for too. So if you'd like that, we're going to open this up. And come stand. People, some leaders will come around and ask you if you'd like to be prayed for. And if you'd like to be prayed for, they'll pray with you. And Holy Spirit is going, he's already in this place. But I believe he wants to empower his church to be conquerors. Because we're called to be a church without walls. A church with many legs. We're a centipede. And we're moving into the enemy's territory all around this place. You wonder why your crazy pastors planted churches in the mountains in Penrith? It's because they were claiming ground, right? Don't go planting a church in a sunny hill. Go planting it in the darkness because it's a light. That's what we're called to do, church. So don't leave this place without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You can't go without it. You're running dry if you don't have the Holy Spirit with you. And He will empower you and take you to places you never thought. And it doesn't matter what chocolate you are in the box of favorites. It doesn't matter. He chooses you. When you come and stand with your arms open and say, God, I've got nothing without you. And I'm not content with just believing in you for the rest of my life. I want the relationship. Yeah? So the band's going to play something awesome. And Holy Spirit wants to meet with you tonight. Even if you're feeling great about the Holy Spirit, He's got something fresh for you. He's got a fresh word. He's got a fresh anointing. So don't let this moment pass you by. Come on, why don't you stand and spread your hands out before God and just begin to worship Him in your own way and ask Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, and do I, do I come forth? Do I do this?
Thanks, band.